Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Maureen Conway, Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you to today's Opportunity in America event. Uh, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we work to advance promising strategies, policies, and ideas to help low and moderate income people in the United States connect to opportunity and thrive in a changing economy. Uh, we regularly host events in our Opportunity in America series uh, so that we can welcome a diverse range of voices and ideas to a conversation on how to advance opportunity in America for those who most need it today. I invite you to learn more about the series and past events at as.pn slash opportunity in America. We're extremely grateful to the Ford Foundation, Walmart.org, Prudential Financial, and the MasterCard Center for Inclusive Growth for their support of the Opportunity in America series, as well as to the CERNA Foundation. Um, and in addition, we're thrilled to have support from Citi for today's conversation, Can Employee Share Ownership Improve Racial and Gender Wealth Equity? We have a terrific panel to discuss how broadening opportunities to participate in the ownership of business assets can narrow wealth divides and expand the freedom of working people to chart their own economic future. We're going to begin with brief opening remarks, then move into a panel discussion and then we will have the final 15 minutes, uh, at least, to take audience questions. So we encourage you to submit questions at any time during the conversation using the Q&A function on your screen. Um, you may also upvote fellow attendees' questions that you find of particular interest. In addition, we encourage you to join the conversation on Twitter. Please use the hashtag TalkOpportunity. And it is now my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker who will share opening remarks. Natalie Abramarco is Managing Director, U.S. Business Partnerships and Inclusive Finance at City Community Investing and Development. Natalie manages City's efforts to strengthen new and strategic business initiatives and aligns internal efforts closely with the work of various nonprofits and consumer advocacy organizations, focusing on expanding economic empowerment and growth for lower income and underserved communities. Natalie has a long and accomplished career at Citi and within the banking industry, playing important leadership roles in the industry and in championing investment and economic progress for low-income communities and for communities of color. I encourage you to read her full bio on our website for more details so you can fully appreciate how honored we are to have Natalie with us today. And Natalie, thank you so much for joining us and let me turn the floor over to you. Well, thank you, uh, Maureen, uh, for the kind introduction. Uh, it's been a great to partner with Aspen uh, to further the conversation about employee ownership. And we appreciate your leadership in lifting up pertinent research um, and best practices to share with the field and with our other stakeholders. As Maureen said, I am um, I'm managing director of City US Business Partnerships and Inclusive Finance. Um, and frankly, the focus on employee ownership has been a journey, but it's probably been the most uh, exciting aspect of, of my career uh, at Citi. And acknowledging the importance of race and gender um, has driven so much of our work for many years. And at this point, I, I do want to share uh, something meaningful that Citi just um, announced. So last month, City uh, launched the Action for Racial Equity, um, which was an effort to leverage City's core business capabilities 
uh, to intentionally move the needle on the racial wealth gap and racial equity in the US. Um, I suggest reading a report that we put out. Um, it's called, and it's by our uh, GPS report called Closing the Racial Inequities uh, Gaps. And um, it was, it's, it really um, highlighted lots of research, um, but most importantly, it created um, an opportunity for us to talk about things that we really did know. And in the report, it found that US had if, if the US had closed uh, racial gaps for black Americans in wages, housing, education, and investment 20 years ago, $16 trillion would have been added to the US economy. And if those gaps were closed today, 5 trillion could be added to the GTB, G GDP in the next five years. So the report is, is really, um, again, reinforces what we all know. And that is, it's not a zero sum game to close the racial wealth gap. It's really a pro-economic growth strategy benefiting all of us. Now, while the action for equity um, is a recent $1 billion commitment um, on business investments, we've prioritized a racial lens in our community partnerships, starting an asset building to support the preservation of ownership among communities of color. And the Asset Building Policy Network, which is a, a network that we have been the sole corporate sponsor, which includes organizations like Unidos US, the National Urban League, National Association of Latino Asset Builders, among others, um, has really utilized a race lens to inform um, programs and public policies impacting low-income communities of color, including the racial wealth gap and anti-displacement of small neighborhood businesses. Building upon our experiences, our team alongside our nonprofit partners um, committed to a national multi-year effort aimed at preserving Black-owned small businesses. And since 2013, we have invested um, in capital access, research, and capacity building um, and in fact, I'm so glad to see Todd Leverett here uh, because it, uh, it's uh, working with uh, Dowie. We've been able to focus on, um, you know, on, the, on this topic. And um, he's going to talk to you a little bit more about uh, the work that uh, Dowie has done um, and in, also uh, in the effort that he has uh, made in... Um, in setting up a fund called Ape Heritage Fund, which uh, you'll hear more about when he, uh, when he speaks. Um, in addition to that, we, we really try to make our priorities very simple. And um, I'll, I'll let you know um, what they are. And it, 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 just, um, it just made it, made it easier for us to, um, uh, to organize our thoughts and to organize our approach. And the approach, um, because business ownership is one of the most powerful tools for building wealth and creating jobs, and employee ownership in particular results in higher income and longer term wealth accumulation, um, we felt that this was an important way to, to go. So here is what our strategy is. Expand employee ownership through education and awareness, raising within the public sector among capital providers and business owners. And this work has been done largely, as I said, in partnership with League of Cities and Dowie. 
With the working world, we've supported accelerating employee ownership transactions through technology that enables virtual business coaching and rapid dissemination of data to facilitate financing and business valuation tools. Rutgers University, Capital Impact Partners, and the ICA Group has been our go-to in providing access to capital, creating a finance-driven approach to ownership preservation and facilitating succession planning services. And most recently, we partnered with Project Equity to provide crisis management to, business in, to businesses in transition. So we believe that expanding ownership in society when taking a racial lens can be transformative um, and result in changing the narrative and the reality of how our own economy is structured. That said, we welcome today's conversation and all of the panelists' respective commitments and uh, work in this new paradigm. Again, Maureen, I want to thank you, as well as Joyce Klein and the Aspen Institute's Economic Opportunities Program. I appreciated the chance uh, to be with you today and to look forward to the discussion about promoting how business equity ownership of employees of color can move the needle for economic growth. I'm going to turn off my um, uh, video for now, but I will stick around and make sure that I'm available for questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Natalie. That was really terrific. And I see people sharing the Citigroup report in the chat. And if you have resources to share, please do share them in the chat. It's a, it's a great way to share um, your work and your uh, uh, resources uh, around this topic. Um, and please do remember to put your questions in the Q&A piece. And I'm now going to very quickly introduce our panelists. They're terrific. I encourage you to read their bios on the website. I don't have time to go into them. So let me just quickly put um, names to faces here. Um, so with us today, we have Janet Boguslaw, Senior Scientist, Institute on Assets and Social Policy at Brandeis University and fellow at the Rutgers University Institute for Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing. Uh, welcome, Janet. Um, also, Ayana Banks, Materials Handler and Shop Steward for Recology San Francisco, Recycle Central at Recology. Um, Julie Bertani Kieser, Senior Vice President and Chief Human Resources Officer at Recology. Susan Hoop, Customer Service Representative, Recology. Todd Leverett, Legacy Business Program Manager, Democracy at Work Institute, and Co Principal at um, oh dear, at Apis and Heritage Cap Capital Partners. Um, and I'm very delighted today to turn it over to our moderator, Kimberly Adams of Marketplace. Thank you all so much for being with us. And Kimberly, let me turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Maureen. And, and thank you to Aspen again for organizing such a interesting and stimulating panel. Uh, this is such an important topic, especially as we continue uh, to address throughout the economy, just the racial wealth gap and the way that it's being really laid bare in this pandemic. You know, at, at Marketplace, we've focused a lot of our coverage on 
just how the pandemic and the economic consequences of it, as well as the health effects, are playing out differently across uh, different groups, especially as it affects race. So I'm super excited to talk to everyone today and to get your questions. Please do submit those in the Q&A. I'm going to try to leave as much time as possible so that we can get to those. Um, Todd, I'd like to start with you. Uh, you know, they were, we were talking about DAWI earlier, which is a Democracy at Work Institute, is, is what we were referencing. And there you work with investors and policymakers across a range of communities trying to expand employee ownership. First of all, can you explain how this employee ownership that you're talking about is different from, say, employees owning stock in a company that's traded in the stock market? Yeah, excellent, Kim. Excellent question. And thank you so much for moderating. And, and I'd like to thank uh, Maureen and Aspen and, and Natalie and City for hosting this event. Um, we've all worked together for, for a long time, so happy to be here in this moment. Um, um, I'll, before I answer your, your question, I'll take a step back. And, and, and Natalie did a great job at really laying out, you know, what this is all about. You know, we all know we're dealing with extreme wealth inequality in this country. But when you zoom in on communities of color and you disaggregate that data, you really start to see that, you know, um, as we often say in the black community, when America gets the cold, black America, and, and may I say brown America gets the flu, and, and I guess nowadays you could say gets, gets COVID, and it's, it's really not a, um, you know, there's really not an overstatement. Median wages for black and Latinx families have, you know, either stayed stagnant or declined over the past 40 years. 60% of black workers, 75% of Latinx workers have zero dollars in retirement assets right now. Um, in the median white family in the U.S. has between seven and ten times the wealth of the average um, black family. So we're talking systemic inequities that create a disproportionate number of working poor and people of color communities. Um, and what you end up with is you end up with a situation where there's a, a lack of resilience, um, a lack of ability to withstand a bad day or a bad week or a bad year in communities. Um, and you end up with a situation where you have workers taking on a disproportionate amount of business and macro and microeconomic risk without being able to reap the reward. So when we really talk about, you know, ownership and, and what does it mean um, at its core and what does it mean in the context of, of employee ownership as we're talking about here today, we're really talking about um, a, a, a principle and practice of properly sharing risk and reward of, you know, risk, business risk, macro and microeconomic risk with workforces that actually, you know, that actually create, that build um, the, the, the products and services that we use every day. Um, I, I really love this, this term that's come, come out of essential workers because it really speaks to, to how the working people in this country hold, hold this country together. Um, and I think this idea is we're talking about of employee share ownership recognizes the essential nature of our workforces, not just in name only. And, and I, I hate to say a lot of it seems to be in name only. It really recognizes them um, and helps them build, build resilience. So, so how employee ownership, as we talk about the Democracy at, at Work Institute, we really believe true employee ownership has, has two pieces. There's financial ownership, the ability to, to reap the rewards of when business does well. And then there's true ownership, um, which, which you can equate to shareholder ownership in publicly traded companies, which is the ability to have input in, you know, in its narrowest form, you know, are you able to vote for who's on the board of your company um, and who ultimately makes, you know, making the decisions about who's going to manage the company? Is there a feedback loop between, between the stakeholders and the, and the shareholders? 
and what's actually going on at the company level. And, and the research really shows that when you do this, you end up with better companies that, that, grow, that grow faster, that uh, withstand down, uh, economic downturns better, that has higher employee engagement, lower employee turnover. And then you end up with a situation where you have employees who are actually getting compensated fairly. So, you know, looking at just S Corp ESOPs as one subset of employee ownership, median account balance of $147,000 in their ESOP account and $100,000 in other plans, including like a 401k plan. You know, the average American when they retire today has about $17,000 in their retirement account. So we're talking about real wealth building opportunities through employee ownership. You know, the median worker of color, 80% higher wages as employee owners, 30% higher incomes as employee owners, you know, and 36% longer job tenure. So we're really talking about flattening the curve to use another common term of this racial wealth gap using this model that really is, is just a fairer and better way to go. Thank you for that. And thank you for that context uh, about the racial wealth gap and, and how employee ownership might play a role in minimizing it. Julie, if I could turn to you to talk about how this actually works in practice. At You are Senior VP and Chief HR Officer at Recology. Can you tell us a little bit about the company? Uh, obviously, from the bio, we can learn what it does, but sort of how this plays out in practice. Yeah, I'm very happy to, Kimberly. Thank you. I'm going to start with a little history of Recology. And I know we should be short, but I'm going to start from 100 years ago. So bear with me. Um, so over a century ago, there were people like my own grandfather who emigrated from um, Italy and came to San Francisco, and nobody would give them work. And they had to figure that out on themselves. So what these early immigrants started doing was picking up garbage all the things that people threw away by themselves. And over time, as opposed to picking it up by themselves and using their hand cart, they got a horse and a carriage, and then they started joining forces and together joined a company called Sunset Scavenger. And that company eventually grew into who we are today, Recology. And we are today, a century later, over a billion dollar company. The neat thing about our company is we've grown over that time period as an employee-owned company. We were employee-owned in a form back in the early days by some of those immigrants who started the company because they owned their own shares in the company. Over time, uh, those shares got sold to other individuals who came onto the organization. And in 1986, they sold their shares to the ESOP, the Recology Employee Stock Ownership Plan. And when they did that, that form of ownership spread to every single employee at Recology. So that truly created our broad-based employee ownership at the company. And we are employee owned through the ESOP, which is a retirement plan. I think an important thing for everybody to know for the retirement plan and for our ESOP is we have 3,800 employee owners throughout Recology in three states. And our highest paid employee at the company is our CEO, naturally. He's been a CEO for over 30 years. And even though he's been the highest paid employee for all those years, he owns less than one half of 1% of our shares. Over 80% of our shares are owned by non-management employees. 
customer service reps, material handlers, drivers, etc. So that is a perfect example of broad-based ownership. And then the other point with regards to the ownership at Recology right now is we are majority minority owned. And I think this broad-based ownership has really gotten us to who we are, this $1 billion company. And actually that broad-based ownership has permeated our culture. And our culture is one of employee ownership. So we have the ESOP, but we also have the employee ownership culture. And that really comes into play with how we are successful as an organization. Um, so I think to sum it up for you, Kimberly, and for everybody else, ESOPs and employee ownership really does make a difference, does help broad-based wealth ownership for all within America, and it is for the greater good. Thank you for that. And it's so fascinating to hear how you sort of started with one version of employee ownership that has transitioned to a model that works in the modern context. Ayana and Susan, you're both employees and owners, and I'd like to get each of you to take a slice of what that means. Ayana, going to you first, how is being an employee owner how has it affected sort of your work life and your career? Um, affected it a lot. Actually, it gave me more interest because before becoming an employee with Recology, it was just like, I'm going to work just another day. But now this gives me a sense like I have ownership. What I do does affect the job. It, it makes the company succeed. So it put a lot of change in my thinking in regards of being, and it's great. And I'll have a piece of a pie that I can really tell my kids, like, look, you will have something if something, you know, was to happen to me or when I retire, we will have something to survive because being employee owned, we have different things. Like she said, we have the ESOP, we have our retirement, we have our 401k. So we have multiple things of becoming employee owner and it gives you a better sense of life and survival. Thank you. And Susan, both you and Diana are very active in the uh, ownership culture committee at Recology. Can you tell us, me what it's like you know I work for a company where I am not an owner how is your work day and your involvement in sort of the operations of your company uh, different than maybe what it's like for the rest of us well to me it's purpose and reason you know you have a reason like Ayana said to go to work every day knowing that it's up to you to do the best job that you can and knowing that you have a stake in the company that it's just not an ordinary company you own stock in this company so you take pride in it and you're and you feel good knowing that each and every one of us have a different role this like in a family each of us have different roles but if all of us do our role correctly we're going to succeed and it's um it takes all of us to make a successful company and being an owner if this makes you every day go to work saying I'm going to walk away every day knowing I did the best job that I can and be proud of who I am and what I represent as an employee owner. Thank you, Susan and Ayana. Janet, you released a report last year looking into how employee ownership can help low and moderate income workers build access, especially when you consider race and gender. Can you tell us what you found and what inspired you to look at this issue in particular? 
you're muted because it's a pandemic and that's what we do. <laughs> Hi, sorry about that. Yes. <laughs> you don't want to hear my neighbors, but maybe you won't. Um, thanks for having me here today. And um, yeah, it's a, it was a very exciting um, research project to work on. It was funded by the Kellogg Foundation and it was run through the um, Rutgers University Institute on Employee Ownership and Profit Sharing. And um, what motivated this was a question that a lot of us ask. How do you um, build the assets of low and moderate income workers um, in ways that will benefit themselves and their families? And we've all been asking that question for a long time. And a lot of the emphasis and the focus of the research to date has been looking at investments in human capital. How do we help people with education or understanding how to work on their finances, things that maybe will help them increase their income. So this project and this research took a different stab at the question. And what we wanted to understand was really, how does the different structure of work potentially help build the assets of low income populations, particularly with a focus on gender and race and ethnicity. So um, that's what we did. We looked at, we did interviews um, at 21 companies um, across the country, and um, there were researchers from all across the country doing it in different regions. So what did we find? The bottom line of what we found was that um, ESOPs are a really great work structure for building um, assets of otherwise marginalized um, workers who may not be able to ever build their incomes and increase their incomes. So income alone isn't the only path to doing this. So I just want to talk a little bit about what we found. Um, I don't want to get too far into the data, but um, it was really significant that um, in the study we did, because it was just a pilot project, um, one of the things we found was that um, the black workers had um, not been in the ESOPs for as long as a lot of the other populations, particularly the white population. And it really reflected some of the occupational segregation that's taken place in this country, but it really looked like over the last 10 to 15 years, that's been changing in these ESOP companies. So one of the findings was that, the, um, for example, the, the black workers in these um, companies didn't have as big ESOP accounts as some of their peers, but compared to national data, it was tremendous. So I'm just gonna tell you a little bit about that. Um, the black women in the sample had a median ESOP wealth value of $32,000. And the national median for single black women was $200. Um, most of the black women in our study um, were low wage healthcare workers. And I'm just so, going to pause you for a minute, Janet, just yeah. because this uh, term ESOP is, is, I think, unfamiliar to a lot of our audience. So if you could just pause for a sure. second, tell us what exactly that is. And uh, that maybe will help us as we continue okay. this conversation. Sure. Um, so an ESOP is an employee stock ownership plan, and it's actually um, a part of the tax system through ERISA that enables, Todd can probably explain this a lot better than I can, but um, it, what it does is it enables um, a firm to um, create a trust of ownership where that's called an 
employee stock ownership plan. And workers do not have to um, put money into participating or buying and purchasing that typically, and they accrue value from this as part of the stock of the firm. So um, you can have an ESOP in a privately held firm and you can have a ESOP in a publicly held firm. So public stores that a lot of people know about, it has an ESOP. Um, and um, Chobani Yogurt is an ESOP. So workers accrue value and when they leave or they retire, they can take the value of that ESOP account with them. And it's considered an additional retirement account. Um, and there are different kinds of tax benefits for the firm when they enter into this kind of operation. Todd, do you want to add anything to that or is that? Janet, I think you did a really, really good job. My, my you know, five second version is it's a four, it's like a 401k created from the same piece of legislation that created the 401k, but it invests solely in the stock of the company where, where the, uh, that employs the workers. So a 401k that invests in the company where you work. Awesome. Thank you for that additional okay. explanation, Janet. I'd like yeah, to get I knew back. You could do it in a more simplified way. I <laughs> but I, yeah. I do want to get back to your results from your research, Janet, but I will also ask that those of you, um, some of you are posting questions in the chat. If you could please put them into the Q&A, it just makes us a little bit, a little bit easier for us to sort mm -hmm. through the questions. Thank you. Sure. So, um, okay, now you have the context. So I'm just going to say it again, that the Black women in our sample had $32,000 of value in their ESOP account. That's separate from a 401k that most of them also held. Um, the black men had $180,000 median. Um, the Latino women had 143 the median. And the Latino men had 200000 at the median. So um, compared to what we all know about national averages and national savings for um, black and Latino workers, this is pretty significant um, amount of money that they didn't have to take or anything out of their own pocket or their only family budgets as they might have to for a 401k to help build some of this asset wealth. Um, I could go on and on about this report. I would say that, and I know that we don't have a lot of time, but um, I wanted to say that, the, that um, Julie talked about the ESOP culture. And I think that what we found was that there were a lot of things about the ESOP culture that also helped people build wealth in their firms because it helped them um, make a lot of different kinds of investments that helped them increase their income. But even without any kind of an ESOP culture, just the structure of the ESOP demonstrated that more firms converting or becoming initiated as ESOP firms help build the wealth of the very low income workers in ways that they'll never be able to do through income alone. So I'll leave it at that and I can ask, answer more questions um, during the Q&A. That's so fascinating. And I'm sure that lots of people will be interested to read that report. Todd, if I can come back to you, she talked about converting companies into an ESOP. You know, Julie laid out how her company kind of started in some ways as an ESOP. But can you talk a little bit about does this really work for all companies, especially if you think about companies that have a more traditional ownership model? What does that conversion even look like? And I'm going to warn you that you're muted. Thank you so much, Kimberly. Appreciate it. So, so kind of leading into the question, let, let me kind of say that 
uh, uh, ESOP employee stock ownership plan is one of several versions, forms of employee ownership that includes, you know, the employee ownership trust and one that's particularly close to my heart and the heart of, of us at Dowie, the, the worker co-op, um, the worker co-op. So, you know, different forms of, of employee ownership that have varying degrees of, of control sharing and the way they work. But, you know, for purposes of the conversation, you know, they're all employee ownership in my book. If they share the wealth and they share some of the decision making um, and, and they share control with the workforce. Um, but to your, I, I, what was the question again, Kimberly? I'm sorry, I gave that, that intro. Well, in. it's, it's, you know, actually, I'll, I'll defer to a question that we're actually getting in the Q&A. What are the barriers yeah. to other companies to Got follow it. the Vercology model? Like, how can Got other it. companies con convert or, or address this? Well, well, I think an important thing to notice is that, is that the ability for, you know, it's not industry specific. You know, employee ownership is, is industry agnostic. You find employee-owned firms across the entire swath from, you know, you know, professional services to your, your, your regular services to manufacturing to it, they, it, you know, it broadly goes across the economy. So it's not an, an industry barrier. Uh, when you talked about specifically, what about firms where there is, you know, a very hierarchical, maybe almost authoritarian sort of, sort of structure to it? I would argue that those firms probably need employee ownership, um, more than a lot of other firms. And I think the question is there, how willing is, is the owner of that firm or the family that owns that firm, how willing are they to, to, you know, to, to expand out ownership and to expand out sharing the wealth of the, of the firm and really get the benefits that we see from employee-owned firms. If, if you look at what employee ownership at its core is and, and how it can improve the operations of the firm, you, you can see that it, it, it can work across, you know, any type of company, uh, because essentially what you're doing is you're aligning the interests of your workforce with the interests of management ownership and the interests of, of the company as a whole. When, you know, when I was in law school, we talked a lot uh, of, about the misalignment of incentives in companies and where there are costs associated with those, those misalignments. What employee ownership says is, hey, we're all going to be on the same page because we're all going to be able to benefit and win at the end of the day. So, so to, to that, I say, I think any employee ownership can work in, in any company. If you're a smaller firm, you know, a co-op model or employee ownership trust can work better. If you're a larger firm, you know, we say a democratic ESOP or an ESOPERATIVE um, is, is a really good model. Um, but, you know, it's, it's all about the willingness of, a, of an owner um, and, and the structure to actually uh, take that in. And one last thing I'll say, there's an opportunity because there are a lot of owners out there that are looking to sell their firms, right? So they're looking to divest of their interests of their own firms and they're looking for buyers. And a lot of them can't find buyers that will either take care and shepherd their legacy or that will even buy their firm. And so I think in those situations, really looking at um, employee buyouts or conversions is, a, is another term, is a real opportunity to, to expand the, the ecosystem across the country. Susan, Janet's research and, and a lot of the questions that, that were coming in are, are about sort of the wealth gap. And I wonder what you feel your ownership has meant to your individual family and your ability to build wealth for yourself. Well, for me, um, it meant everything. I was a single mom with two kids, no child support, uh, no help. Um, I worked at one job, no benefits or anything, coming to Recology, it 
made my dream come true, working for an employee-owned company, knowing that I have benefits, knowing that um, I have an ESOP, and the ESOP, they put uh, shares into your account. And, and when I look at it today, thinking I couldn't even put $5 in a savings account if I wanted to. So an ESOP's more or less like a savings account to me, because someday I'll look at it, and when I look at it, it's I almost have tears in my eyes thinking, I could have never put that money in that account. And so I think an employee-owned company is good for everyone, no matter who you are. It's something great. It brings pride into you and you just feel like, and my family knows how much I care about my company and all my kids are very successful now. I have grandkids and they're successful. Even my grandson keeps going. I just want to get one foot in the door. I don't care if I have to pick up trash on the ground. I don't care if I have to sweep. He goes, I want to work for your company. It's an employee-owned company. You're so happy. You love your company. And it just brings pride and joy knowing that you're making a difference and that I'm sharing it with all my fellow employee owners that we are in it together and we're... Um, we own a part of this company. It's just not any company, it's our company. Well, Julia, I'll turn to you. And I mean, and I'm, I'm going to assume that the, the, the laud, lauding language is not just because you're here, but uh, I, I wonder if this helps you with retention and recruitment, uh, this particular structure, because I can imagine a lot of business owners might look at this and say, why should we give up ownership? Why don't we just go to the markets to get investors and owners instead of turning to our employees? It definitely does have an impact. And I know Susan and Ayana well enough that they wouldn't say it just because I'm on the Zoom call with them. <laughs> no, we wouldn't. So no. with regards to recruiting, we do tout the fact that, you know, we're an employee-owned company and that does have an impact. I honestly don't think a lot of candidates understand what that really means until they get here and learn about the ESOP and our culture. So uh, I keep telling everybody we are the best kept secret um, because we are great and it's that culture that really makes us who we are. And it's hard to explain that to somebody who's not within the culture. So, so that's one thing and that ESOP does help us with retention. I do wanna go back to something that Janet said because she had mentioned there's different forms of ownership. The key for Recology is we are 100% employee owned. So 100% of us is owned by the employees. So we're privately held. And because we're privately held, we truly can make, I think, longer term, better informed decisions that are in the greater good of Recology. Maybe short term, we could have a hiccup here or there. But if we're really making the right decisions long term, it's the right decisions for the entire corporation long-term. And I'll use an example just to share. Um, our competitors consider themselves in the waste garbage industry. Recology considers ourselves to be in the resource recovery industry. We wanna divert as much as we can away from landfills and do the right thing and fulfill our vision of a world without waste. How many people in a company like us in the waste industry have a vision of a world without waste. You wouldn't see that in a public company because in a private company, we don't have to answer to the analysts. 
we can truly figure out how do we invest our money to help us achieve the vision and have our employees understand that and all be working in the same direction and going in that direction to achieve it. So I think employee ownership, especially 100% employee ownership, allows companies to make better decisions for the company. And in essence, that's better for all of the employee owners, which impacts their ESOP retirement plan, which goes back to what Susan said. It helps build that wealth for the employees. That long-term thinking is, is really fascinating. And, and Diana, I'm wondering if you can maybe speak to how your ownership of the company where you work makes you think long-term about your work in addition to sort of what Susan was talking about earlier, how it affects your ability to build wealth for you and your family. Um, it makes me think long-term not to worry, because as we know today, we don't know if Social Security will be here within the next 10 or year, years or so. But with being an ESOP employee and with the company striving as it does, it gives me a long-term understanding that I will um, have stability within the next 10 years throughout the future because of the ESOP company. Also, um, it makes me, it, I've been with the company for 20 years. I never thought about being with a company for 20 years or more. And it gives me a stride to even want to stay longer because of the um, stability that Recology offers as being an ESOP company. And um, like Susan, I was a single parent coming in with the ESOP. It, it um, helped me a lot because not, you know, we can't take out of the ESOP, but you can show your statement as a form of income that would help you to get loans, purchase a home. So with that, it helped me put um, my oldest daughter through college. And now my youngest is at Xavier University going through college to be a lawyer. So it gave me that stability to help them grow even more and to educate them more and um, have a sense of, you know, what you want to be in life. So um, it's the long-term thinking, and I like how Recology does it. It gives us a chance to think about longevity, like we're in this company for the long haul, not just a short-term speaking. And like Julie said, most of us, most of the employees are non-union. We're union members. We are the drivers, the material handles, the customer service that makes the public want to continue to work with us without, you know, and we have to show them that we have a love for our company in order for us to strive and survive in this industry. We are getting so many fascinating questions that if it's all right with you all, I'm just going to ask uh, one more question each to Todd and to Janet and then switch to the audience questions. And uh, so for Todd, um, I, I saw some numbers out this morning from Color of Change and Main Street Alliance that something like half of all Black-owned businesses are, are closing in the pandemic. And small businesses have just been battered by the economic fallout of the pandemic. What does this type of ownership model, does it give any businesses any kind of buttress or protection for moments like this? Yeah, you know what, I, Kimberly, I would say that firms that are, and, and I love the conversation around long-term thinking for workers, for CEOs, for companies. Um, there's research out there, um, and you can look, um, there's a lot of research out there that talks about, and it looks at the last recession. And it said, if we looked at employee-owned firms during the last 
recession compared to non-employee-owned firms, what did we see? And the research showed that uh, employee-owned firms were significantly more likely to survive an economic downturn than their non-employee-owned peers. Um, and I think one reason for that is that employee-owned firms are thinking about the long term. It's not just about what's going to happen the next quarter, <laughs> you know, or the next two quarters. It's not just about how can we, you know, do stock buybacks and remove as much capital from the company as possible to reduce investor risk. It's really how can we build long-term wealth for the workers, and how can we keep this company here for the for the long term? And Janet referenced some of that that great research. So I would say that I would imagine that you know, as we move through this and as the numbers come out, that you'll find that employee-owned firms were more likely to survive. I've already seen some really amazing stories about resilience and, and ESOPs and co-ops about how instead of, you know, just laying off an entire workforce where the workforce would, would actually say, hey, does it make sense for all of us to take some, you know, percentage pay cut so that everybody else, so that we don't have to lay off a portion of, of the workforce? Um, and you also find that employee-owned firms will, will actually keep more cash on their balance sheets. They'll actually build more fortress-like balance sheets within their firms um, for, again, the benefit of the workforce and the, and the long-term benefit of the firm. So I would imagine when this is all said and done that you'll see employee-owned firms lasted longer and survive better. A as far as, you know, employee-owned firms' ability to, to save a business that is getting zero revenue, you know, that's really where you need you need government, you need impact, you know, impact investment, you really need, you know, these large institutional players to step in and really help deal with the, the cash glut that's going on right now. But, but what there is right now is a very real opportunity because you have a lot of owners who do not want to go through this next period of recession. You have a lot of owners sitting on some very valuable commercial assets that want to sell their assets, and the market for buyers for these assets has dried up to some degree. And so you have a real opportunity to move, you know, you know, uh, wealth creating assets over from owners who want to sell over to workforces that want that stability, that want that wealth building potential that Ayana and Susan are talking about. And this is what, you know, the project that I work on, Agents of Heritage Capital Partners, the Legacy Business Fund that Natalie referenced, this is what we're trying to do. Can we catalyze um, institutional impact capital, foundational capital to find that opportunity to move that wealth over and do it during this period of time. Because big private equity is also looking to do the same thing right now. Um, and they're not going to move the wealth over to, to the workers. It's going to go, you know, to the traditional players. So a uh, big opportunity here. Yeah. Janet, a bit of a technical question for you. Can you talk a little bit about how the government treats these kinds of businesses? We had some uh, interesting comment from uh, Corey Rosen in the chat that maybe you can wrap into this saying, people listening in on the call may not understand that ESOPs are not funded by employees. They are funded by corporate pre-tax profits and have a lot of tax benefits for owners selling to an ESOP trust. Both parties have supported these and other tax benefits. Uh, 100% percent ESOP, for example, pays no taxes. Uh, I'm not asking you to be the tax expert here, but can you talk a little bit about sort of how the government treats this, this business structure? Yeah, I mean, Corey's the, Corey said it beautifully and, and laid it out beautifully. So, um, you know, maybe I'll just expand on some of that. Um, first of all, there's something called the Main Street Employee Ownership Act of um, 2018, which um, gave the Small Business Administration the tools and the authority 
it needs to help small businesses um, in transition to employee ownership. Um, but it's not being fully implemented. And so um, there is legislation that, that tries to support it. And, and on the um, site of um, the NCEO where Corey works that you can see a lot of information about that. Um, that's an area where this is a really ripe time to push for implementation of that because um, it, that's what, particularly, you know, I'm focused on the low income populations, right? So low income populations, you know, need resources to um, help get these projects structured and the SBA can help with that for all of the things that Todd was just talking about. Um, also, you know, there's a big discussion um, taking place about whether ESOPs can be also considered minority-owned businesses or women-owned businesses around, you know, the preferred status certifications. And so there's a big movement there. Um, these are trusts, and if it is a majority-owned owned trust by um, women or people of color, then um, there's a big effort to make sure that then they can apply for different kinds of contracts and, and status. So there's a lot of ways that um, that legislation and policy can help move some of this forward. Um, I guess just I want to just add that, you know, outside of, um, you know, federal legislation, um, there are at least 10 um, state centers now um, mostly supported through state legislatures to help advance employee ownership in the states. And in mayor's offices, they are starting to have um, a focus on employee ownership through their economic development offices. And a few mayors are even setting up um, offices of employee ownership. And that's not just for ESOPs, it's for co-ops and it's for all these different models. So um, at each of these different levels from city to state to federal, there can be different kinds of policies and different kinds of initiatives that help move it forward with a sort of a legislative or policy um, perspective and frame. So I hope that gets to people understanding some of these issues. I also just want to say that um, at the NCEO site, as well as um, NCEO is. the National Center for Employee Ownership um, has a lot of data about this. So does um, Project Equity, who just put out a really great new report that sort of summarizes all the data and the information about employee ownership and what some of the policy and practices are. And um, at Rutgers, there's a CLIA library with um, employee ownership information that is sort of a wealth of information that people can go to to find out more about all of this. Thank you everyone for all of these super fascinating questions that are coming in fast and furious. I doubt we'll get to all of them, but let's try to dive in and I'll ask our panelists just to try to answer as concisely as you can so we can get to as many of these questions in the time that we have left. Uh, this may be a short one, but it's super technical. I'm going to toss it to you, Todd. Is there legislation in the works to preclude loss of 8A certification if a certified company me moves to an ESOP or cooperative ownership model with 50% uh, or more broad-based ownership? First of all, why is that important and is it in the works? Excellent. Well, well it's, it's important because, you know, 8A, the 8A program is one of the programs that, that grants um, that allows for, for minority-owned um, 
businesses to get to get a real chance and a real opportunity for government contracting opportunities and, and really build their firms that way. And so the question of, you know, is it important for a firm that may have an 8A certification that goes to employee ownership to be able to maintain that 8A certification as long as, you know, the majority of the employees are, 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 uh, are minority employees is a, is a huge question that, as Janet was referencing, you know, it is, is trying to be, is a question that people are trying to, are trying to figure out. And it's not only just, you know, 8A certification, it's minority certification or, or women-owned business certification at the state level, at the municipal level, um, when you're looking at, you know, um, the National Minority um, Supplier Development Council, like, is their certification, does that qualify if you're looking at employee-owned firms? And for some of the work that's been done thus far, I know there have been conversations that have had where it sounds promising that um, at the very least on like a, a, a state level, certain states, certain municipalities state that, you know, they would recognize it. I'm not sure if it's 100% clear at the, um, at the 8A level yet, but it's definitely something that is important to, to push for um, because, you know, losing that status um, for minority-owned firms could, could mean a lot, a lot of, a lot of problems. And people are posting some interesting and helpful links regarding uh, some ongoing legislation and, and pushes for legislation in the chat. Ayana, uh, I'd like you to address this question if you don't mind. Uh, the racial wealth gap in the U.S. was created by centuries of federal, state, and local economic policy. How are these individual, private, or relatively small-scale solutions like employee ownership supposed to fix that? Is employee ownership a good thing? Thing to do to slow down the gap that's getting worse. Um, this person says maybe, but will it actually close the race gap? And uh, they're interested in, in, I think, everyone's thoughts on this, but maybe Ayana and, and then Susan, if you could address what, what you all think of that. Um, yes, I think it is. I know here in San Francisco with Recology, it closed the gap tremendously because one of our facilities is based in a minority a black community and Recology had made the commitment to hire strictly from that community, three different zip codes. So here I know it is being enforced. It's a fact that it is helping the black communities and they are looking and it's, um, it's closing the gap here in San Francisco. For others, I'm, I would hope that they would do the same thing in different other companies and that Recology can lead by example, letting them know like, but it is giving us an opportunity Mm. To, Susan, um, go ahead, go ahead. Diana. I'm there. Oh, well, Susan, <laughs> I was just wondering if you think that this is scalable. Like, can it expand to the rest of the country what you all have done in your company? I think it can. A lot of it lead by example. So looking at Recology, um, we believe in that we're employee owners. It doesn't matter what race, what religion, um, we believe in that we're all in one and we will work together and we will be successful together. So I do believe that um, when they see strong companies that do believe in everybody's equal, it can spread and it will spread and that's how it should be. 
A question for you, Julie, specifically, how, where did you find the legal and administrative guidance to establish the ESOP and employee ownership? Now, I know you mentioned earlier that you had a bit of a background in this heading into it, but for the structure that you have now, what were the, what guidance did you turn to? Legal. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's like legal department took care of everything. <laughs> really, it's an ERISA plan, so there it's complicated. You have to follow the laws and the regulations and the all of the compliance. So you certainly can't do it alone, and we knew we couldn't do it alone. So we did get um, an expert in the ESOP law field, and he actually has been working with us to this day. And that advice and guidance has been critical. And um, so that's what I would, I don't always like to recommend attorneys, but I would recommend <laughs> attorneys um, at this There's point. a reason we have lawyers. Another question uh, specifically for you, Julie, um, how does Recology compute upper level management, for example, CEO compensation? You mentioned earlier your CEO is your highest paid person, but has a very small share in the company. But in an employee ownership model, how do you go about calculating that? I think an important component for everybody to understand, at least from a recology perspective, is the ESOP is a component and a vehicle and influences quite a bit. Um, one thing to remember is we still are in business. We're still out there. We're a for-profit company. We still want to beat our competitors and provide the excellent service and do all of those things that other companies want to do. So to do that, we have to hire and recruit and retain. And part of that is the total compensation package. So when we look at our compensation for all employees, we look internally as to how do people compare with each other. Plus we have to look at the market. So we, although the CEOs, um, for the ESOP has less than one half of 1%. And partially that's because we have a cap on salary as to how much shares you can get. Um, we do have to act like a normal business and provide compensation in other ways for the CEO. Thank you for that detail. I'm sure that's helpful for people thinking about how this applies in the real life market. Janet, a question that came in that I think I'm hoping you can address. Has anyone looked at whether there are health impacts of employee ownership? Well, health is a very broad category. Um, I would say that um, Nancy Wyfick has done some interesting work looking at some national statistics. Um, I'll say that in our study, it was a really interesting um, conversations that came up multiple times that people talked about the health effect in terms of, you know, not feeling as much stress from work. Um, it came up in a lot of different ways. Um, one person talked about um, when she's not at work, she doesn't have to think about work so much and she doesn't have to be as stressed. And she talked about, you know, another person talked about, um, being with their friends and all their friends could do um, on weekends was talk about work or talk about worries and stresses and that being at the ESOP, she didn't have that same kind of concern. Um, it sounded like being part of an ESOP where there was um, some of the other things built in aside from just the account gave people a lot of sense of economic security and a lot of future orientation. People started feeling that they'd be able to take care of their health and be well and healthy and 
in retirement, something that they often talked about wasn't a way that their peers were thinking about retirement. So health, um, we know that, that worry and concern about finances is very stressful for people and their health. Um, other people talked about knowing more about the finances of the firm, which helped them make decisions about their own finances. Did it look like things were a little rocky? Were they maybe gonna be out of a job? Could they go on vacation? Could they spend some resources? So all those different ways that being part of an ESOP, both because of more greater financial transparency about what was going on with the firm and this future belief that they would have that account and that money to help in future needs, all of that really helps people think about um, their health and their well-being in a different way. So. This may not be the, the, the group to ask this question, but I mean, playing devil's advocates, advocate here, what are some of the criticisms that you hear? And Janet, you'll probably know this having done this research. What are some of the criticisms that you hear about this model that um, companies say we can't do that because of this or, you know, the things that are holding other companies considering this model back from actually going the next step? Um, I can start and then others can jump yeah. in. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of fear, all right? And um, what I would say is that in all of the firms we, where we did our interviews, every, they also had a 401k plan where the stock was diversified. So one of the fears is everybody doesn't want to have their nest egg all in one place and count on that for the future. But they're not doing that. This is companies that have 401k plans and they additionally have the opportunity to build wealth through an ESOP. So I would say that takes care of, you know, one of those things. Um, the fear is that um, the wealth, while it's accruing, something might happen and that nest egg that people are counting on won't be there. But we didn't find in our interviews that people were spending that money ahead of time. They knew that it was something for retirement. They weren't going into debt or anything with, in some kind of anticipation. So I guess that nixes out some of those other kinds of concerns. Um, even whether it's a co-op or an ESOP, um, I think that there's a concern that do people have enough knowledge? If, if it's a smaller firm, do they have enough knowledge to be um, employee owners? Will they get to taken advantage of? Will something happen? And um, all those organizations that I already mentioned, along with, you know, the um, Institute for, you know, Employee Ownership and, and Profit Sharing at Rutgers, they all um, are plugged into, and there are a lot of resources for making sure that worker owners have the information they need, that they get the skills that they need, so that most likely they will not be taken advantage of in some strange way. So that's how I think about that question. Todd, you might have some more things or others to add to that. Yeah, you, Janet and Kimberly, I think about it more in terms of, there are, there are significant barriers that have prevented the expansion of this, of this model. Um, I think one, especially when you look in the world of larger companies and, and employee stock ownership plans, there's costs. So we talked about, you know, if you wanted to change your business from traditionally held to employee owned, you know, the cost of hiring, you know, the attorneys and the advisors and setting up the plan can be significant. I think there's, there's just general lack of, lack of knowledge, right? This is not part of our American ethos of entrepreneurship and, and how companies are set up and formed. So it just feels foreign in a very real way. But if you look at some, you know, 
parts of Europe, parts of Latin America, you know, their employee-owned ecosystem from the co-op world to, to other models is very robust. So there's an education piece. And then there's a piece of, uh, about capital, which is if you're doing, again, we live in the world of, of employee buyouts or converting companies, you know, where does the capital come from to actually, you know, allow an owner to exit the business and, and the workforce to, to kind of take and, you know, be able to, to own the company. And so, you know, there are a number of models out there, including our own, you know, working work, the working world, the ICA group, you know, a number of groups out there that are trying to deal with the education piece by educating owners, um, dealing with the capital piece by saying, we're going to help aggregate part of the capital stack from the investor community, from the institutional community, and, and really help deal with the cost by saying, you know, at the end of the day, if you do this the right way, your company won't have to pay taxes, <laughs> you know, won't have to pay, you know, tax at the company level forever. So, you know, some upfront costs really gets paid back to the firm over time. So education cost and capital um, is really, you know, and also educating our institutions on this should really be a part of an economic development plan for our country. Yeah. Mm. Julie, there's two questions, actually, I'd like to get your insight on, hopefully, um, from your own experience, as well as maybe talking to other business leaders uh, who've, who've in, been involved in this. First of all, should a company be of a minimum size before it realistically makes economic sense to become an ESOP? Um, actually, that one's probably better for Todd or like a Corey Rosen, but because mm -hmm there is some complexity and some cost to starting an employee stock ownership plan. Mm -hmm. I, there is a rule of thumb out there that you should be a particular size. Um, so, or Janet, maybe. Well, well, then very quickly, Janet or Todd, is there, what is that rule of thumb? Okay, so, so, so I've, you know, when we look at employee stock ownership plan, ESOP, some people say a firm needs to be, you know, some people say a million dollars in EBITDA earnings before interest tax appreciation and amortization. I've heard other firms go down as, as small as, you know, $250,000, you're able to do it. But, but I think this is why it's really important to highlight. There are other mo models of employee ownership, including the co-op model that has similar tax benefits where the cost of setting it up, you know, is, is the cost of setting up a regular LLC or the employee ownership trust which doesn't have all the regulatory framework. So I believe there's a, there's a model of employee ownership out there, whether ESOP, co-op, EOT, that can work for a business at a particular size and a particular revenue and, and profit number. And Janet? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess what I would say is that um, we know from our data and others' data that employee ownership is going to build the wealth of everyone in the firm and particularly low income or moderate income workforce. So this is something that there should be a strong um, incentive for um, government and legislatures and private investors to, to, to invest in. So we have lots of private equity funds that go around and they buy up different firms and they have pots of money that they've pooled for these kinds of investments. Um, we can also develop pools of resources that are large scale that can be used um, as a way to have a pool to draw on for investments that are going to have really broad social impacts. So the impact isn't just for the individual worker. When that business stays in a community, rather than being sold and shut down and assets moved somewhere else, 
that helps the community. It helps them with jobs. It helps them with tax resources. It, it, um, it circulates in that economy. And so there's so many investors who are interested in looking at social impact investing right now. They need to be able to come together and say, this is an area where we're not saying invest in firms where you're not doing your due diligence. These are firms that are good firms. These are firms that um, have solid, solid business going. It's just in many cases, there's a reason either it's being sold because it's gotten too big for someone to manage or someone's going to be retiring. There's lots of reasons why businesses get sold. This is an opportunity for social impact investing to build up a big fund so that smaller firms or even larger firms don't have to be scurrying and trying to figure out how are they going to make this work. This is an investment model that helps everyone and particularly needs to be invested to benefit um, and close the racial wealth gap. And it may not close it overnight, but mm -hmm. certainly if you can get this to scale and you can have this happen over and over and not have so many um, businesses being shut down and so many businesses being having their assets liquidated and moved somewhere else, this will be a strategy. But it does take investment from the investment community to um, make the transitions happen faster so that it can be competitive and at scale so there can be broader impacts. Can I just add to that one very quickly that uh, I think the impact exactly is really focused on the community as well. I, as Ayana mentioned, if we can hire from the community, then our employees, employee owners are benefiting and they're spending money in the community. And then when they retire, their ESOP is allowing them to have funds to continue to spend in the community. So it's really a very long-term um, advantage for the community just for one employee owner. And then when you multiply that throughout, it's, it's, it's incredible. That actually gets to another question that I was hoping Ayana and or Susan can address. Um, how liquid are the assets generated by an ESOP since it's a retirement plan? Can worker owners use the assets for other investments, such as buying a house, starting a side business, or education? Ayana, I know you mentioned earlier that you were able to use that as sort of a statement of, of assets when you were applying for a mortgage. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how else those funds can be used or the, that asset can be used? Yeah, um, I use it for that. Like for loans, you can use it for it. So with the ESOP, you can't take it out until you reach your retirement or at the age of 55 when you can start removing funds from it. But mostly it's just assurance that you do have a source of income if you was to fall back on like if you was to lose your job or something that will cover for any loans you take mortgages you take out on your home so it's just a great it enhance your income as you would go to apply for a mortgage loan a scholarship loan or whatever type of loan it enhances your income letting you know that you do have the income to cover the loans Susan, have you used it in that way as well? Um, no. Well, to for a house, yes, I used it um, for, I was right on the pier where you could go one interest up or one interest down, and it made me have a lower interest rate. Oh, so wow. that's really nice to do. So that's really important too, that 
this that statement can help you get a lower interest rate. Um, we are almost out of time. I'm just going to throw one question out to the room in hopes that uh, somebody might be able to address it. Does anyone have direct experience with ESOPs in rural locations? Are there any? And if so, have there been any challenges that may be unique to rural locations? Anybody? I would only say that Recology is in three states and mm -hmm. in 140 plus communities and some of our communities are quite rural. Mm. No difference, you know, if you have a worker who needs to provide services and they, no difference to rural or city from my vantage point. Well, thank you for that. And Janet, you had something very quickly? I was, I agree with Julie from the research we did. Okay, wonderful. All right, I'm going to turn it back to Maureen. This has been so fascinating. And so thank you to Aspen for giving me the opportunity to be a part of this conversation. And thank you, Kimberly. Wow, that was a really rich and fantastic conversation. So well done moderating. And thank you so much to all of our panelists for, um, for all of your comments. It was really great. Thank you so much also to our audience. Um, Lots of questions, hooray, lots of sharing um, resources in the chat. So that is really fantastic. We will be sharing the recording and everything after this event. So if you are like me and you are trying to write everything down and listen to things and everything else, don't worry, you'll get another chance. We'll be sending it out. Um, there will be a feedback survey. Please do take just a minute to fill it out. We take your uh, feedback to heart. We use your suggestions as we try to make our events better and better. So please do fill that, fill that out. And I also really wanna thank all of my colleagues at the Aspen Institute um, in the Economic Opportunities Program. It is a huge team effort to put these events on. So huge thanks to them as well. Um, and hope all of you will join us again for another Opportunity in America uh, conversation. Uh, thank you all for your commitment to these issues and to this work. Bye-bye now. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.